You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario and it's a complete delight this evening to welcome the gardener and Betty Woodman. Um, we're being sisterly here and we, we happily collaborated with the gardener to present this, this talk here. So Betty Woodman has an exhibition that is just about to open, I believe, tomorrow at the gardener called Places, Spaces and Things. And judging by the images, I'm definitely going to go. And I do believe, by the way, if we have AGO members here, that you have a two-for-one for AGO members. Thank you. I'd like to introduce Patterson Sims, who is the curator of the exhibition, to introduce Betty. You're definitely here to hear Betty, and I, I can't blame you. But I just wanted to say quickly, I've known Betty for a number of years, kind of through the different museums that I've worked um, with and my own kind of growing passion for her work. Um, I think what's remarkable about Betty is that she brings so many disparate elements together and she does it in such an incredibly beautiful way. I'd really say that Betty changed my life very dramatically and her art changed my life because she made me not fear beauty. I'm, I'm kind of a product of my generation, which I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm kind of a person of the 60s. And I think I see the dark side more than I see the light side. And we're certainly living in an era which confirms anybody's consciousness of, uh, or feeling that there is a dark side to life um, and human existence. But Betty's work just brings me to another, another level. And I sort of, it gave itself to me and I gave itself, uh, or, and I now give myself back to it. But what, is I, what I feel is so fascinating is the way her work really brings together the past and the present. It brings together Europe and America because half of her life has been spent in much of her adulthood in Europe um, with an extraordinary place, studio, and kind of uh, ambience in Italy um, outside of Florence and the hills above Florence in a town called Antella. Her work, of course, I think as many of us know very intensely in this room, because I feel this room is just filled with artists, and of course, what could be better uh, in life than to be in a room filled with artists, except maybe being in a room filled with art. But we're in a museum filled with art, art and we have a room full of artists. But that Betty's work bridges also this whole notion of what we call craft and what we call art. Both of them are very nebulous terms, but somehow she makes all that ambiguity of what is what and what is the other absolutely dissolve in just the sheer intelligence of her work. She obviously brings together painting and sculpture in very, very dramatic ways. Um, and again, tonight she's brought together, and I think in a very metaphorically and physically powerful way, she's brought the AGO and the gardener together. Her work really being, as it were, kind of the ties that bind all arts institutions, especially in a city that is as dynamic and energetic as Toronto. I would ask that all of you go to the show. You got to the talk, now go to the exhibition. Because as good as the talk is going to be, the exhibition is even more glorious. It's a wonderful selection of Betty's work, I guess is the curator, I can, that sounds a little bit sort of embarrassing to say that, but I think it is a good selection of the work, mainly because I worked incredibly closely with Betty. Um, so if you like the show, thank Betty. If you don't like the show, blame me. Finally, what I'd like to say is that um, 
Betty is really not only as an artist, um, but as a person, a kind of a hero of mine. I'm not actually extremely objective about Betty. I just, I love her. <laughs> I just adore her and I adore her work. But what's wonderful is I feel I'm in the room with a lot of other people for whom Betty is also a hero. So I think we should give a round of applause to our hero, because she's about to speak. Can you hear me, or should I lower this? Maybe I should lower a little bit. Is that good? Okay. Um, perhaps heroin. <laughs> but um, the image that's up here to begin with, and which you've had, uh, I hope, the pleasure of looking at for the last ten or fifteen minutes, is was a hero of mine. It's a it's a pot, a teapot of Lynn Phelan who was uh, my teacher in 1949 at Alfred University at the School for American Craftsmen. And I started um, with the image of this little teapot grown very big on the screen um, because I think that it's had a huge influence on, on me. He did. Uh, his attitude uh, towards towards clay, towards what one could do with clay, and perhaps particularly with um, the wheel, which is, was the tool um, that I, I fell in love with, along with falling in love with clay. Um, and this little teapot, all the parts are made on the wheel, and then they're sort of manipulated and stuck together. And um, in a way, that's what my work is still all about. Now, if I could find, there it is. So, uh, I've, uh, I've worked for many, many years, and uh, I am not going to talk about my whole life as an artist, but I think in 1951, and uh, which was my first trip to Italy when I finished school um, and I went to work in Italy for a year. And then this piece um, is a cafe latte tray and I would say <clears throat> it's about um, 30 inches long and I think it was as a transition from being uh, a functional potter and making things which were actually functional to being, um, to using function as the subject of the work of art that I was making. And so that I didn't abandon function, I simply incorporated it as, as a conceptual idea and which is still, I think, very much a part of my work today. Um, there's no looking at or talking to me or discussing my work without mentioning my husband, George. And um, these are two images of his work, a painting made uh, in the 80s and a photograph made a few years ago. So I'm going to start with um, the porcelains 
and uh, the origin of the show, which is now here at the Gardner Museum, and originated uh, at the um, Porcelain Museum of the Pitti Palace in Florence, which is at the top of the Boboli Gardens in this absolutely exquisite pavilion with an amazing, all these pots on the roof and the, the garden in front. And I, uh, this is an image of, these are the porcelain pieces which are here in the gallery on the second floor of the Gardner Museum and some of them on the third floor. So this is just to sort of show you the way they were shown in Florence originally. And um, I first went to uh, Sevres to work at the manufacturer um, over 20 years ago. And the French Ministry of Culture had, had initiated a program where they invited artists, particular potters, to come and work with porcelain with the idea of introducing some new ideas and bringing to life the production uh, of the factory, which had been there since the time of um, you know, Marie Antoinette. And um, so the, this is uh, the work that I did there. Uh, and this is just a few images of the way the show was installed. It was my dream um, after I had finished working there on and off for over 20 years uh, to, since the work was really all directly in response to work that had been made uh, of the soft paste porcelain which I used in the 18th century that I wanted to be able to put my work in the context of the history of that kind of porcelain object. And um, this is the museum. And this is a slide of um, the plaster room at the manufacturer. It's a, an amazingly aesthetic experience no matter where you go in this building. And just to see the color, the shade of green the shade of turquoise, the, the whole um, kind of, the whole aesthetic of this space was just, it was a pretty amazing experience to be working there. This was the room where uh, I did my, my colored glazes. And there they are waiting, uh, these cups and saucers waiting to be fired. There they are in the cart going to the kill. Don't don't miss the the, the way that cart's painted. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, the woman who assisted me in in uh, working with the glazes and who's going to be doing an addition with some gold with me uh, hopefully this summer. So there they all are, like soldiers on the shelf, the additions which I made. And this is the last piece that I've, I've done with them. And just a couple more slides of uh, the installation. The view is different than the view here in Toronto. So this is the main body of the lecture. What I thought would be interesting to talk about was 
how an idea develops or developed for me. And the idea that I thought I would, I would talk about was working on the wall, because I think in some ways, if I've made a contribution to ceramics, it, it was in, in sort of occupying the wall and using the wall. And this is uh, an early piece made in 1986, and there's a shelf and a vase with an image of a vase on the actual vase, and then the handles, instead of being attached to the vase, are attached to the wall. And it begins to occupy a kind of sculptural space. And the handles also are, amusingly enough, quotation marks, which is also very true of a great deal of my work. As I was doing this, I started off with the daring thing of putting the handles on the wall instead of on the pot. Then I made the handles not symmetrical. Then I rather accidentally, in this blurred slide, um, at a museum in Holland in Den Bosch, I, I put six of these pieces on the wall and realized that they really read as one, and that wasn't it interesting to see the way the space in between became activated and the relationship of the spaces around the piece to the wall and to the whole um, composition. Then I, I fooled around and decided maybe I should make uh, a bouquet of flowers that went into the vase. So I made these ceramic bouquets, which I think look just like Lynn Phelan's tail on his teapot tail handle. These pieces are made um, in Italy. Uh, the previous pieces were made uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And I've had for many years three studios, one in Boulder, Colorado, where, where both George and I taught at the university, one in Italy where we were in the summers, and then one in New York um, for the last 30 years. So the wall, <clears throat> the wall pieces got a little, a little bigger. I, I fooled around with making um, the shelf into an image of a vase with a shelf on it, which then held a vase the painting surface got more complicated. Uh, the flowers sometimes go in the vases, sometimes don't. That's George with flowers from our garden in Italy. And that's a, a raku piece that's on the wall at the bottom of the steps that I keep filled with dahlias. So, um, the pieces got bigger, perhaps. They, they became, uh, I made a series of pieces that had uh, an image of the vase that went on the wall that was like a shadow, so it became a vase and shadow. I fooled around with making triptychs within three shadows. And um, I would say the piece on the left, which doesn't have the size, is about 
It's about 24 inches high, whereas the triptych, each one is about 14 inches high. Um, I did a series of pieces that were uh, looking at architecture in Italy, looking at architecture in Florence, looking at Renaissance architecture, looking at Mannerist architecture, looking at Baroque architecture. And these pieces were done in Italy. Um, they're earthenware and they're just um, fired in um, kerosene, fired kill. And the, all of the, the surface and the color is simply what happened in the kill. There's no, the decoration is done with extruded clay on the clay, like through a pastry tube. The pieces started to, to get more complicated in their relationship um, to architecture and in my, my interest in architecture. My interest in, there's always a vase, but if you look at balustrades, often the vase is the void in between the columns or it may be the columns themselves are vases, and then the space in between the columns are abstract. In this case, uh, there's, there's sort of the columns of the balustrade or the framing of it, and then sitting on top of each one, images also of vases painted on rather abstract form, and vases which have flowers in them. I think the painting on this piece came from um, looking and thinking about a Picasso painting. And I think that most of my painting and my surfaces come from some kind of a historic reference. Um, I think the, the slide with a picture of me in it was an exhibition I had at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, and it was this was um, it was a retrospective show, but this was a wall of <clears throat> drawings, and uh, which I had done based on my wall pieces. Um, I had a um, a fellowship at the uh, Bellagio, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, and um, I'd applied for it, and I said I wanted to do drawings. And then by the time I, I got there, I thought, you know, what am I going to do if there's no clay? And, uh, you know, I'm going to, who wants to do drawings for a whole month? I'm going to be bored. I'm going to be bad. But it was a wonderful experience. I had, I, had, um, I had a very good time making drawings. And I have, ever since then, spent a fair amount of time making drawings. The piece um, from 2002 is, you know, it's just an extension of what happens, uh, starting with that first vase in, in 86 or 84. I think that uh, these compositions are approaching painting, using space occupied by painting. I'm interested in the implied rectangle, the implied painting, um, and I'm very interested in the spaces, obviously, in between and around, 
And then in painting something, the challenge of painting something, which is all these disparate parts, but making them into one, uh, one thing. So uh, I've done many of these pieces. I call them balustrade relief pieces. Uh, in this one, I've actually implied at the top edge that there is an edge, it is a painting, and it always seems to me that that picture is sort of playing loop-de-loop. -loop. It's going from one, one vase um, to the other. I think that um, I couldn't look at these pieces without thinking about Matisse and his paper cutouts. I didn't start them that way. I really started them um, using up the scraps of clay that were left after I had cut something out of a big slab. But there they are. There's his figure, and um, there's my piece. So I, I certainly uh, admire tremendously and have learned a great deal from uh, the kind of, it's very interesting just how little you can give somebody and how much can be seen. And so how much of a story can be told by just a few fragments. And sometimes I start with too much and then sort of see, I keep taking things away and seeing how much can I take away and still have you, you the viewer or me the maker sort of understand what I want them to understand. It's an interesting game of not giving too much but giving uh, enough. This is a very recent one, it's 2008, and um, it has a relationship to the piece, the large piece uh, which is up at the Gardner Museum in that in those pieces all of these Korean vases were on lacquer tables. And so uh, here I've implied the image of the table, the lacquer table with the vase, um, which is sitting on top of it with painted flowers. Going back a little bit in time, um, in 1984, in 83, um, I was invited to do a collaboration with a painter named Cynthia Carlson, who had been working, making wallpaper, doing things on the wall. She was part of the, the pattern and decoration movement in New York. And um, we did a huge installation at FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. And we decided to mimic each other and she was doing flowers out of extruded plastic. And I did them out of extruded clay and then pieces of thrown pots that were cut and, and decorated. Um, and it was very interesting uh, for us. We, we, I came from the world of craft, she came from the world of art, and it was a very interesting uh, conversation, um, I think, to find out you know, what was different about her way of beginning to think than mine. Um, the same year I did another collaboration with uh, Joyce Kosloff. And I don't have that because we didn't work on the wall and this lecture's all about the wall. So then 
I made um, the Aspen Garden Room um, in 1984. It was shown at the Aspen Museum. And I think the first place that it was shown was at Bennington College in their gallery. And I did a series of, of doorways that were pieced, that were fabrics um, that I made at the uh, fabric workshop in Philadelphia. And I made three different fabrics and then cut them up and put them together, as if I was cutting up the clay and putting it together. So uh, this was the first uh, of my works with the fabric workshop and the Aspen Garden Room. Then, um, I'm not quite sure when, maybe it says, no, doesn't, all right. Uh, a few years later, Diane Vanderlip at the, at the Denver Museum commissioned me uh, to make a piece for a specific gallery that was, it'd be 10 meters long, and it was like sort of a hallway, and I did this piece called Somewhere Between Denver and Naples, and it was inspired by the courtyard of the Church of Santa Chiara in Naples, which I hadn't even seen. I just saw a postcard picture of it and thought, oh, that was wonderful. It had all these amazing tiles and then grapes that were growing over it. And um, you can see how long ago that is, George, with long hair and sort of, you know, looking like a hippie. So that piece, uh, that piece has had an interesting history. Um, I, I've, I've been invited to exhibit it in different places. And each time, it has a very different uh, confirmation. So this is it. It was a little hard to see, but in a much more open space at the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. And now, uh, this is it at the Denver Museum, where it, it lives um, permanently at this point. Uh, and this is in the, in the new museum uh, designed by uh, Liebeskind, where there's, there are no perpendicular walls. So, um, and that particular wall, I think it starts at 30 feet high at the beginning and it's nine feet high at the end. And so, um, I think in that one corner you can see the little sketch I tried to do to sort of figure out how I was going to install it. It's kind of interesting because I'm about to go to Denver, I think, again, to install it in a different, uh, in a different physical setting. Uh, after that, uh, I had, was invited uh, to go to the European Ceramic Work Center. And I thought, well, that's nice to go to Holland, to Den Bosch. Um, but, you know, why do I need to go there? I have my own studio. So my friend Scott Chamberlain, who was there a year before I was, said, you know, Betty, you have to do something big. You have to tell them you need a big wall. So I wrote to the Yvonne Yours, who was the director of the museum in Den Bosch, where I'd had a show, and said, Yvonne, if I do a big piece, can you... Uh, you know, can you help me get some place to show it? Because it'll just be fragments, and I need to be able to see it after I do it. 
And she wrote back and said, I've scheduled you for a show in such and such a gallery in her museum in June. And uh, the gallery's 10 meters long, so 30 some feet long. And uh, I thought, well, you know, what's gonna happen if it doesn't work? If I, you know, the clay doesn't work, though, I don't know what I'm doing. And finally decided I better say yes, and then if it didn't work, I'd say I'm sorry. So uh, <clears throat> that was, I, so I told them I needed a wall 10 meters long, and they made a wall for me, and this is the piece um, there. And uh, this is where it, it lives now permanently at the Rhode Island School of Design Museum. So um, I think in making these pieces that they, you know, that have gotten so big, and um, I've realized that the problem was, how do I take all of these small parts and not just have it be busy? Um, what do I do? And I'm not a very big person. I don't work in very big things. I don't like things that are too big for me to put in the kill by myself. Um, and I realized in this piece, I think, for the first time, that the way to do this is to have a certain kind of repetition. And so the form is, um, f formally, it's, it's very, I think, very clear, and it's divided. It has that first row of these sort of balustrade pieces, and then <coughs> it has um, three actual shelves with three-dimensional vases that sit on them, and then it has bits and pieces of handles or uh, images of vases um, that, that sort of alight on the wall. But that the repetition of those pieces holds it together and keeps it from being just a bunch of busyness that's on a 30-foot wall. Uh, the next sort of large wall piece I made was called House of the South. And uh, this is it, in putting it up at the Gulbenkian Museum in Portugal with um, Scott Chamberlain, Deborah Dell, and, and uh, Manuel de Costa Cabral, the director. And, uh, you know, it's a heady thing having, having people put your work up using, using all these uh, <laughs> scaffolding and so on. So this is the piece. Um, as it was, uh, it was made in, in, uh, in 96, and um, this is it installed at the Metropolitan Museum in New York when I had a show there a few years ago. So I think I, you know, it's called House of the South because it reminded me of Egyptian wall painting. And all of these pieces are, for me, my inspiration does come from kinds of wall painting, of uh, Roman wall painting, Egyptian wall painting. Um, and I think in this piece, 
I, I did sort of the same thing. It's organized in, there are sort of benches at the bottom, and then these ha columns that go up, and then some, some three-dimensional vases, and at the top there's a frieze, and the frieze is a series of shelves, and it has um, images of pots, pots look, that look as if they're pouring water, pots that are just sitting there, and it's, it, that's taken from Roman um, frescoes, I'm sure. But I think that I, first I make it with too much and too rigid, and then I start taking things away and moving things around and seeing how I can still have the kind of life to the piece, but it, it holds together. Um, at the same time as I made that piece, I became interested in coming out more into the space, using making something that was on the wall, but that was also occupying the, the actual space and the, the sculptural space. And um, <clears throat> realized in doing that, that I had to simplify uh, the, the piece itself was physically more complicated, so I had to simplify what was going on with the painting. Um, and this seemed, this is conversation at the shore. It seemed to me that it was, you know, you're at, this, at the shore here at the lake, and there's a railing so you don't fall in the water, but you're sort of looking out. Maybe you're looking in. And the other one that I made at the same time was, uh, it says 92, but I don't believe it because I know I made them at the same time. Um, <laughs> it was uh, Women at the Fountain. And um, it's, you know, I think, you know, I, I, sometimes you think, are you just doing the same thing over and over and over again and how boring? And uh, obviously, it is the same thing, and yet, and yet it isn't. And in this in this piece, I think you know there they are. The vases are simply made from the voids uh, in be in between. Um, for me, it was a huge challenge to paint it, and um, so what I ended up doing, and I'm sorry I don't have a, an image of that, was to ask my husband to make a photograph of it, and then I. He made a series of photographs, and then I painted on the photograph to figure out what I was doing so that I wouldn't ruin my piece when I was painting it. Um, this piece, Egyptian wainscoting, um, it also known as uh, calligraphy, uh, was all of these parts are made, many of them are made when I'm making something else and I, I cut out a form from a big thrown slab, thrown and stretched slab of clay, and I look at what's left over, and I, I save it. I may cut into it, but I'm very interested in it because it's the kind of form I would never make with my hand. And so it's taken me, you know, it takes me someplace that my own hand wouldn't conceive of and wouldn't make, and it's, I'm doing now 
a series of, of uh, sculptures of rugs where I've taken all of these scraps and I'm putting them on painted canvas on the floor. I'm all excited about it. Nobody else seems to think much of it. <laughs> they'll, they'll be wrong, you'll see. I think that um, this is an installation I was invited to do at, up, um, up above a Greve in, in, in Chianti. And they invited artists that were given spaces in various villas and, and churches and gardens. And I chose an ancient stable um, and this, the, the, the slide with the, the photograph with the drawing on it is a picture of the way it looked when I chose it. And I made that picture and then went home and started what really attracted me to this space was that crazy little window. And then I started drawing on the photograph and figuring out what I was going to do. And it's a big installation. This is just a, a slide of um, an image of one corner. This next is a series of pieces that I've done in bronze. And uh, this was the first bronze fountain that I made for the De Rosas in 1995. And in making it uh, and deciding to make it, I made a, a kind of a drawing, a full-scale cartoon of the piece and uh, painted it so that when we cast the piece, um, I made the piece out of clay, took it to the foundry, and they cast it in bronze and then uh, the color is all done with uh, patina. So I would know, you know, how, how I wanted to paint it because we, we would put up the painting and, and do it. This is, um, and follow the painting. Um, this was uh, the second fountain, I guess, that I made, which was the Beacon Fountain, and it's in uh, Beacon, uh, New York, up the Hudson a little ways. Uh, the first one just had one little piece jet of water. This one has six jets of water coming from all of these various forms. And the piping for the water is on the surface so that it becomes like a line drawing uh, for the piece. Then this is the most recent fountain that I've made. And uh, it's called A Visit to Rome. <coughs> It's 90 feet long and has 50 jets of water. This is uh, shown in my gallery in Florence, uh, Bagnai, and the gallery they now have is very small, but they had a gallery that was a garage, and it was a huge space. And um, so we made the fountain and put it on, on the wall, and um, it didn't have any water in it but he found uh, a home for it. Uh, this is a detail, and the copper piping, each one comes out, and then it will have a little uh, jet of water that falls into a pool and gets recirculated. So let's see. This is it um, in Perugia, in the sculpture garden, uh, where it's next summer we'll have water coming out. And there'll be there'll be kind of small rocks in the in that uh, open trough that you're seeing, 
And this is just to show you the, what the copper piping uh, that we use, like half-inch pipe that uh, carries the water. And there it is um, on the wall, which he built for it. It has now, you know, some vases which sit on top of the wall uh, also. And then is, you know, at this hour of the day is wonderfully reflected in the swimming pool. This is, I hope I'm not taking too long, but this is uh, ceramic pictures of Korean paintings, which is one of the main pieces, which is at the Gardner Museum. And it was done in 2002. It's the first piece that I uh, did successfully painting on, well, in this case, it's painting on canvas, and then with the ceramic pieces mounted um, on top of the painting. And the painting, as you'll see, has gotten more complicated, but it was originally done by painting with clay on the canvas with terra sigillata, and the coloring uh, terra sigillata made with kaolin uh, with, with um, pigments. I've recently, I've switched to using acrylics, but the inspiration for that piece came from uh, this uh, series of Korean uh, folk art paintings, uh, Yi Dynasty paintings of vases and flowers that I saw when I was in Korea for an exhibition. And uh, the piece next to it is simply a kind of another offspring of, of the ideas. I think I have, I see things, I have ideas, I do things, and then I work off of my own, my own ideas. Um, but let me just go back, maybe if I can see what I'm doing to that. So from this, my extrapolation of that drawing is this, okay. After that, I got a little more daring with what I was doing, and I, I, I started making pieces which have a painted canvas. They're, they're large. The canvas is 10 feet tall. Um, some of them are eight, some of them are 10 on the whole. And the vases are probably about 32 inches uh, tall that sit in front of them. So the vases are the three-dimensional sculptural form, and um, this is just uh, an exhibition that I had in New York. And um, <clears throat> this slide it shows you a piece which was inspired by a visit to the Villa Oplantis in um, Torre, Torre Annunciata, which is outside of uh, Naples. And it's, an, it's a fairly recently excavated uh, Roman villa. And uh, just, it's incredibly beautiful. And as we're walking through, there was this room with all these crazy stripes. And then if you look in the opening in that, in that window, it, there are amphora, you know, just leaning on the wall there. So that has inspired a whole series of pieces. In this case, um, there's the vase, and then the, the image of the vase, or the mirror image of the vase, actually switched. 
which is painted with kaolin on the canvas. Uh, just a, a Roman fresco and an example of, of the kind of geometry that interests me in Roman painting and the fact that all of those openings at the top have, have vases in them. So, and my kind of response to that piece in the Villa Oplantis from 2006. Um, another Roman fresco and a drawing of mine done with clay on paper. And uh, the green room, which is part of the collection of the Metropolitan in New York. Um, it sort of, sort of looks Chinese to me. And then is Anthony and Cleopatra. And, and trying to deal now with not just flat painting, but with perspective, sort of reaching, reaching for understanding perspective, something which somehow I was never, I never got, never was taught. Uh, I think uh, in, in the, these are pieces which I think are very uh, figurative. They have these sort of columns, which are women, certainly, and, um, and windows. And I have done a whole series of pieces based on uh, modernist painting, based on, on the ideas of modernist scene and modernist painting done on the Riviera and, and always with with um, images of windows and views through windows. And it's very interesting, uh, Card arrived with an invitation a couple of days ago for a show that's going to open, I think at the Guggenheim, of, it's called Rooms with Views. So I'm not the only one interested in the, in the windows. Um, another, another piece, a recent piece from 2009. and an installation at uh, Certaldo uh, in Italy that was very challenging. The room is, uh, Boccaccio was born there, and I don't know when that building was built, but it's all frescoed. And uh, so you couldn't touch the walls, but somehow had to respond to what was in the room. And it was interesting, it was a group show, there were five of us, and we all did things with terracotta. And I think it's because the town is all made of red bricks, and it was, we didn't know each other, we didn't talk to each other, but when the show was set up, that was what you know everybody had done, so it was, it was quite interesting. Um, the piece, uh, Roman panel, and I'm gonna move along a little faster, which is, was actually the, a piece which I did for the show at the Met. It was a site-specific piece. Since the gallery was 20 feet high, I, I made a piece which went all the way up that wall. Um, there are a few more, just more recent things. Um, I did, um, was invited to do an installation which was in response to something at the Philadelphia Museum of Art last year. And the, what I decided to do was, 
in response to uh, the Lansdowne Room, which had been, was an Adams uh, house that had been, uh, was about to be demolished, and, and so it was acquired, parts of it were acquired by various museums. The Met has one room, and the Philadelphia Museum has this room, and it just blew me away, and so I did something in, in response to it. It wasn't in the room with it, it was in a room near to it, and this is uh, what I did. Um, and I sort of made the lunette, and then made another piece, and then made these two vases, which um, are totally white, and that was for me a very, a very new thing, to not paint on something, to just allow the form itself to speak. And uh, so that has inspired a, a whole new body of work. Um, the reason I did that, the white was the room that was that in the museum that you went through as you approached my room, and I decided that was all white, and I had to make my pieces white uh, because of that. So um, that somehow led to a piece with a, a wooden painted piece with a shelf and a vase on top of it. And those were then used in uh, my most recent installation, uh, which was at the American Academy in Rome, and um, was based on, on Roman frescoes, uh, Pleasures and, and Places, it was called. And it's 20 feet high, and I finally am coming back out into the room again with these white amphora, playful amphora forms. Um, and enjoying um, the images of columns of figures, which are clay, and then, and then the same image repeated in, in paint, in kaolin, on, on the wall. Uh, looking down, all those stripes came back. I have wooden shelves instead of clay shelves, clay flowers, using clay just as red clay, um, not putting any glaze on it, daring for me. Uh, an image of my feet in socks. <laughs> and. Um, Two fairly recent uh, pieces, which are don't have a three-dimensional pot, which have this column, which is definitely a figure, um, rather narrow and tall, and um, made in response to uh, Matisse's Moroccan uh, figures that fill the canvas. And then two pieces uh, that I did last summer. Um, I'm very frugal. I had these strips of canvas left from doing the piece at the American Academy. And I decided to, to use them to make a, a couple of friezes. And so here's one, and then the other. And this piece, which was done last summer, 
which will be in the show that opens in New York on Friday. And um, the view from our, our terrace of our house in Italy, which inspires me, and the sunset in Italy to close it all off. Okay, that's it. <laughs> I'm happy to answer questions if I can hear you and if anybody has them. Do we have time or did I take We it? certainly do have time. Okay. One thing we like to do is use the microphones to, we'll bring them around to you to answer, ask the question. We are actually recording this for the website. We'll podcast it. And it's very frustrating if we don't record the question. We often have great answers to great questions. So I'll bring it over to you right now. I don't know whether I should really be number one because it isn't a question. I had took a course from you 22 years ago, Betty, and I just wanted to say how delighted I am to see you again and see your wonderful new work. My name is Barbara. I don't know whether you remember. <laughs> thank you. Thank, for, you. thank <laughs> you for doing this. I look forward to the show. Where did you take the course? I'll ask the question. In Boulder. I was down in Boulder on sabbatical. Uh huh. Wonderful. Um, I, I am um, thrilled by the fact that you're mixing um, media, two-dimension, three-dimension, and I'm struck by a process question and how you actually affix those pieces, the, the clay. To the, to the wall. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just put uh, holes in the pieces when I make them small holes, and then they're put on the wall with nails, uh, with finishing nails, um, or with a screw. And so um, they can all be extracted to move on to the next uh, installation. I didn't hear no, you. No, sorry. If so, if you want to dismantle the piece... You, you just, just take it down. Oh, lovely. And Thank the you. canvas... <laughs> um, no, it's very direct. Uh, the canvas um, acts as a pattern uh, for the piece, if it's a piece with a painted canvas, right. uh, so that... I make an outline with a pencil around it and mark where the holes go mm -hmm. so that you hang the canvas on the wall, put the nails in the holes, oh, lovely. and just mount the uh, clay pieces. There's, not, there's no glue. It's not affixed. It, even in the Chinese piece, it was... Drill, uh, I saw you drilling. No, they were put on with screws. Oh, I see. And, and what you saw at the beginning of that film was that I specified to the architects it was... Um, Skid Mulmerrill and Owings, who did the building. Um, and there were eight buildings in the American Embassy in Beijing. But um, that I wanted the wall surfaced with wood. And that that would, then I could screw into the wood. So we screwed uh, screws in, and but it was all drawn on the canvas. Uh -huh. And then uh, with a paintbrush, just painted the head of the screw. Great, thank you. Uh, thinking about the process, uh, when you're painting with kaolin, uh, do you cover it with something to make it more permanent? Can you, can you, re I'm sorry, I, I could. Uh, I was wondering, when you're painting with the kaolin, uh, do you then, say, cover it with a lacquer or anything to make it more permanent? No. Or is the kaolin permanent as a pigment? When I'm painting on the canvas, uh -huh. it's, uh, no, it was, oh, the clay. 
Um, it was terra sigillata, if you know what that is, uh -huh. which is like a water. I've actually, um, so I just paint with it. Uh, I, when I paint with it on, on paper, I use a paper that's quite absorbent, so it goes into the paper. I also sometimes uh, use wax, uh, a liquid wax, which I would use as a resist in the ceramics. I use that on the paper, and it makes the clay uh, darker. But um, I've switched now, so the more recent work is painted with acrylic, and uh, is, I'm not using uh, the clay anymore because when I did the piece in Beijing, I woke up one night and I thought, you know, I'm out of my mind. It's going under a skylight in a new building. The skylight's going to leak and the clay will just wash off. And so I just said, you know, it's time to figure out something that was more permanent. So I figured out a way of using acrylic and using it so it was sort of washy and the brush strokes would show and it would have the kind of energy that the clay had. It's different, but it, of course, has expanded my palette of colors enormously. And um, so now I have to be a little restrained in what I'm doing. <laughs> so It's funny, with it, making those pieces that I call rugs, I really liked the way the, the bisque clay looked on brown craft paper. And then I painted something and it, it just didn't look very good. So I spent days trying to make my, paint, my painting look like brown craft paper and finally succeeded. Not an easy color to, to figure out, so. You talked about how difficult it was for you to not paint on the, you know, the white ones that you didn't paint. Um, can you talk a little bit about the spirit that you had to quiet for those pieces? You know, the spirit that drives you to paint the colors and the designs. Yeah, I think if I understand, I think it's you know it's interesting. Um, I think I like to paint. And I think I have a kind of satisfaction in my work in that the forms, you know, are, are very much about working. You know, I make them on the wheel, I make all the slabs on the wheel, and I, I construct the forms. And then there's a period of time, it could be a month, and then I have... So in making the forms, I am thinking about the history of ceramic forms. I'm thinking about um, pieces of Greek vases, of, of, of um, Roman, Roman pots. I'm thinking about clay objects. Then when I go to paint it, what I'm really thinking about is painting. And I'm thinking about the history of painting. I'm thinking about uh, you know, Barnett Newman and how I'm looking at paintings at how they're sort of underpainting and how maybe it's black but there's been green put on underneath or yellow or whatever. So uh, I'm thinking about painting. I'm looking at paintings. Um, so I have sort of two, two moments because there is that time 
lag between what you make and then what you're actually, you know, here I am, now I'm going to paint it. And I think I, I really love the painting. Sometimes one seems a chore, uh, sometimes the other seems a chore, and, but usually once you start, you, you know, I enjoy what I do. But I think um, leaving those pieces white the way I did for the Philadelphia Museum, when I looked at them, I realized they're really very beautiful as these, these forms. And I've shifted, you know, they're not clay color, they're white. But, um, so you might think, well, they might be like plaster or something like that, but they still, you really see the form. And I realized that this is something new for me to explore. And that the business of, I, I always have, these pieces are very frontal, so I've always done, you know, one side is quite different from what's going on on the other side because it's as if I have two pieces of paper and I can make two different paintings. But uh, it's, in, it's interesting um, that, I don't know if that's actually answering your question, but I think it, um, you know, for me, it, it, took, it took my being able to see that and then the restraint of, of, of doing it. And uh, so that's what the show I have in New York that opens on Friday, they're, they're, it's called Front and Back. And the pieces all have you know, something figurative on one side and the other side is pretty minimal, um, which is, you know, it's just something I've never done before, so it interests me. And I think, you know, part of the problem of being an artist is to continue to be interested, to get up every day and, and be excited about what, what you might see happening in your studio. So, is there more questions or is that it? Oh, I'll do this one and then that one. Um, <clears throat> I'm just curious about the cutouts that you have and how you, um, conceive of plotting them out on the wall. Do you have a, a whole series of them and then do you plot it out ahead or does it just happen as you're installing? Um, I have, well, I think I started off having, you know, actually making paper patterns and cutting around the paper patterns and I have draws and draws of these, of, of sort of stencils that I use and I would use it over and over again. And then I think finally it occurred to me to look at what was left over and I started putting a couple of holes in them so I could put them on the wall, perhaps trimming them, changing them a little bit, but firing them. And I had, I've had boxes and boxes and boxes of these things. And I have shelves and shelves and shelves in Italy of them. And then I think I don't even know what I have. I need to sort it out. So when I've done the balustrade vases, what I often do now is simply uh, when I go to glaze the vase, to sort of, I've made the shelf and the vase. 
And then I start sorting through these things. And I, I work on the floor on a piece of paper, and I sort of figure out what I'm going to do, what seems to look good. And then when I, I paint it, I, I've made the decision about the forms. But of course, the final decision about the form is made when I put it on the wall, because it's very different on the flat surface than it is on the wall. And what was so scary about the piece uh, for Beijing, and I made it, I made a, um, a model first, was, but I'd never seen it. I had no wall like that to put it on. I had a floor big enough at my storage to paint it, but I had no wall, you know, so I really didn't see the piece. When it's a very big piece, um, usually I make a model and uh, the model is usually a third scale. That seems a comfortable size for me to work. And then I can sort of, you know, make my decision. So for the piece at the American Academy, I made a model. But it's very different when you shift the scale, the scale of the piece. So it's like, you know, it's scary and exciting. And, uh, you know, when it works, it's thrilling. <laughs> Hi. I was going to ask you, um, I, I hope it's not too personal a question, but your work to me, and I'm sure to many uh, people here, uh, seems so jubilant and so full of joy. Uh, in fact, it has been described as a hallelujah of color. Um, and I'm just wondering what it is in your life that um, you draw from that inspires you to, to keep such a, a positive and ebullient focus in your work. I don't think there's any real um, answer uh, to that. It's it's an it's a difficult it's a difficult question. I think that uh, my life has had great tragedy, um, and uh, you know I think my husband would say I do nothing but complain. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I um, so I think you know I, I at some point was quoted as saying maybe, maybe I'm the one I'm trying to make happy with my work. You know I do I do like to work. I mean that's that's what I do. I'm very compulsive. So is my husband, and and uh, you know we're artists and we get up in the morning and pretty much. You know, try to go into our studios and and work. Um, I think it's very hard to know. You know, when you're an artist, what seems right? How, why does this seem right and that seem wrong? Why do I know when I've put something chosen, that's the piece I'm going to put in there? Look at that; it's great. Why do I think it's great? I think it has to have. I. I, you know, I've worried about this um, or thought about it a lot, and I think it has to have uh, a, some, a kind of formal resolution which is quite clear. So I would say I'm a formalist in that sense. Uh, I think I am. I think it's very important. I don't, I don't want too much chaos in my work. But I think it's like, you know, you walk through the museum. Why is it when that you see something? And 
it just seems like there it is, and your heart stops. Um, I don't know what, you know, I think it's a mistake to think that you can sort of psychoanalyze the artist from the work that they do. So I have, you know, I really can't answer. Um, Any last questions? I'm glad it makes okay, you happy. <laughs> <laughs> I do know how to say thank you for that, you know. I mean, I think, let me, let me uh, then I'll answer. I, I think that we were talking before, Julian, and, and uh, you know, I think we've been brought up to feel that art, in order to be serious, has to make you feel badly. <laughs> and I, I don't think I believe that. And I think that... Uh, People say to me most often that what I do makes them feel good. And I've learned to say thank you and to be pleased that it makes them feel good. So, Yeah, I think I was telling you that I got in trouble at art school for having too cheerful a palate. <laughs> I just want to say what an inspiration your work is. Um, and I really appreciate not just uh, your work um, for its joy, but the connection to history and art and architecture. It uh, makes it very multi-layered. Um, but on a more practical note, I'd like to know uh, how long it might take you to do a 30-foot wall, uh, and whether are you the only person working on the, the component parts, or do you have an assistant who helps you in any way? Well, I think the Beijing piece took a, oh, like a, it was pretty much of a year and a half, and I did have an assistant, and he came from Nova Scotia, and uh, <laughs> Chris, and he and he helped me uh, tremendously. It was a big project, um, and. Um, I don't like someone to actually make my work, but I have, we have, uh, Katerina, we have an assistant uh, who you know, certainly does all of the paperwork and, and all of that work. And then uh, Chris Wall was, you know, he, he arrived at the right moment and he wedged a lot of clay and he uh, mixed a lot of glaze and he, you know, rolled out big, huge canvases and marked them off and put tape on for the painting and, and um, you know, and held my hand gener generally. Uh, at the moment, I'd rather work by myself. And I don't, I live in Italy six months of the year, and I don't have any help um, there. Um, but in New York, I have someone um, one day a week, and now I have someone who's, because I've been lazy, I have Alexandra who's been wedging clay, I call her the little, you know, the slave. I think that, you know, and she's, I, you know, I, I actually like wedging clay because uh, it's while you're wedging clay that you think. So, um, you know, it isn't that bad an activity. It's just that when I go away for six months, my clay is too hard, and then it has to be dipped in water, and then it has to be, you know, so it's a big job. But um, I have some help. But I, I, I have never let anybody throw something for me. Um, 
and I, I would, you know, I would say, oh, it's just help all around the edge, but somehow they're mine, and I don't want, I don't want to let go of that. Oh, I'm selfish, I think. I don't see any more hands, so I think it's a very good moment to thank you so much for a wonderful talk. I do want to tell you we have some very large walls here at the AGO if you're looking for a place to do something in the future. Uh, that was an excellent, excellent talk, and I, I, I particularly love the vertical piece. I could feel my spirit soaring. It just felt right for, I know, this time of year. Um, yeah. I'm looking for a home for the, for the piece from the American Academy. So. Okay. <clears throat> I just say, what, what a good thing this has been. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, Patterson. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, the gardener, for bringing this talk here. It, it's just as at home here as it would be at your place. Um, which leads me to our next talk here, which is March 24th, uh, which is Dr. Amin Jaffa, who is the director of South Asian... Um, South Asian Decorative Arts for Christie's. And he's going to be talking, it's a talk to go with our exhibition, The Maharaja's Splendors of the Raj. So he'll be talking about pieces that have been commissioned for the Maharajas. So that was March 24th. And let's keep these cross-pollinations going. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.